Maharam Majlis at the Islamic Center at New York University, Ushik Fayez Jafar. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim wa bihi nasta'in Sallallahu alayki ya Sayyidi ya Mawlaya ya Rasulallah wa ala ahli baytikal madlumin Sallallahu alayki ya Sayyidi ya Mawlaya Mawlaya wa abna Mawlaya ya Aba Abdillah يا رحمة الله الواسعة ويا باب نجاة العمى يا غريب يا مذلوم يا أتشان كربلا ما خاب من تمسك بكم والأمن من لجأ إليكم سادتي يا ليتنا يا ليتنا كنا معكم فنفوز والله فوزا عظيما قال الله العظيم في محكم كتابه الكريم والقول كالحق والأستق القائلين أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم وخلق الجان من, ما من مارج من نار فبأي آلاء ربكما تكذبان صدق الله العلي العظيم صلوا على محمد وعلى محمد As we mentioned last night, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created this universe incredibly vast and is filled with unique creations that those who roam in the sky and those who are in the depths of the ocean also that we reflect so that we contemplate so that we dig to the depths of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and understand what he, what he means when he states فَتَبَارَكَ أَحْسَنَ الْخَالَقِينَ that all praises and all blessings are due to the best of creators. And that every day when we're walking in the streets, and every day when we're looking up at the skies, and every day when you're roaming around and you have nothing to do, and you look at the uniqueness of the creation of God, it's all supposed to be a mechanism which brings you closer to Him, allows for you to gain in terms of the depth of what is known as ma'rifa, the depth of the knowledge of this creator of ours. In a tradition from Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen Ali alayhi salam, he states, awwalu deen ma'rifatullah. That the first step in religion is to know your creator. And numerous instances take place whereby individuals, they went toward the Prophet, or they go toward other Imams of Ahlul Bayt, peace and blessings be upon them. And they say, how is it that we can gain in terms of the depth of the knowledge of our creator, to which they state, Look at the creation. By means of the creation, you're able to understand the Creator. Individuals who believe they can understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because we just have the ability to understand God, don't know the first thing about Islamic theology. Because we cannot even take a look at the sun for a couple of seconds, which is a creation of God, let alone how do you expect toward understanding the Creator Himself of that sun, of that moon, of these stars and of this vast universe and all of the planets and all of the other creation that are within it. It's supposed to be an opportunity for us to humble ourselves. An opportunity for us to, our, to humble ourselves and understand who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is and at the same time who we are as His creation. If I could ask everyone one more time to please move all the way forward as they possibly can with one salawat ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad.
And keeping in mind the uniqueness of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we see that there are plenty of things that we just don't know about the creation of God. We don't know about the communities that the bird species live in. In the same way that we don't know about the uniqueness of how the fish within the depths of the ocean live. And as I mentioned last night, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states within the whole Qur'an that He has created the animal community in societies and civilizations that are similar to yours, meaning similar to ours as a human being. Thus there has to be a sense of understanding and a sense of respect and a sense of recognition that we are just co-inhabitors in this massive universe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created and whereby we can utilize everything within it as a mechanism for a stepping stone for, our, for building out our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But again, when it comes toward issues and facets that are unknown, oftentimes it brings forth a lot of questions as well. In a narration, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, he states, That the human being is the enemy of that which he does not know. When we do not know about something, all of a sudden we become fearful of it. When we don't know about the intricacies and the details of death, for instance, we don't want to talk about death. Why would we ever want to engage in a conversation whereby we have to recollect our own mortality? Because we're fearful of it. One third of the Qur'an is dedicated toward death and the afterlife. Yet every single time we talk about death, oh man, conservative sheikh talking about death again, because he's going to tell us that we're all going to go to hell even though we know he's going to be the king of hell himself. <laughs> Again, going back toward the tradition, he states that the human being is fearful or is the enemy of that which he or she does not know. Imagine, for instance, you go ahead and you try to explain toward the child, the infant, the embryo in the womb of its mother that you are going to go and enter into a world that's very different than the world that you are in right now, in the womb of your mother. How would that child take it? We'd be like, no, we're pretty comfortable here. We're warm, we're satisfied, we're fed, we're taken care of by the one who loves us more than anyone else, we're good. Now I ask you, 30, 40, 20, 50, 70, however many years old that you all are, that many years later, would you prefer to go back into the womb of your mother? On a bad day, someone might say, man, definitely, any day. But if you really go back and think about it, no, there's a lot of nice benefits and blessings and luxuries of this world. But back in that world, we would have been fearful of it. And we would have said, no, I'm good right here. And when it comes toward a discussion around other unique creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we see amongst those things which we don't know about, so we fear about it quite a bit, is the jinn. I can't tell you about how many people they reach out to me asking me questions about jinn. I talked about this last night, now you guys think I'm exaggerating. Top three questions, take istikhara from me, Sheikh. What verses should I read at my cousin's wedding? And number three, I think a jinn is possessing me. But you're laughing, but in a reality, I know that many of you might be questioning the same exact thing. But again, going back toward the tradition from the commander of the faithful, that the believer, the human being, fears that which he or she does not know about. So in order for us to make progress, 
and allow for us to have a sense of illumination from the wisdom that has been offered toward us by the Qur'an and by the Prophet and his Immaculate Family, peace and blessings be upon them. It's important that we sort of, sort of try to illuminate and try to break out the question of exactly what is the jinn creation? How are the jinn creation relative toward the life that I lead on a day-to-day -day basis? Someone says at the end of the day, who cares about this question? All we have to do, we have to focus on ourselves. I agree with you. I don't think that it's so significant or that it's so important for us to understand our responsibilities on the world. But in terms of understanding, again, the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the word jinn 22 times within the whole Qur'an. And that many times that when he mentions the word jinn, he compares it to us, the human creation. وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسِ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ We did not create man, human beings, nor did we create jinn except for the purpose of worship. In another verse, the verse that I began with, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He states, and we created insan, the human being, from clay that comes from this earth, and we created jinn from the fire that also comes from this earth. So again, keeping in mind that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala compares us many times toward this creation. And in order for us to allow, to plunge into the depths of knowledge, Really that which has been offered toward us by the, the whole Qur'an and by the traditions of Ahlul Bayt they offer us a lot, my friends. They offer us a lot. But where do we often take our religion from? But my grandmother said this, and my grandfather said this, and back in my own homeland, this happened and that happened. And all of a sudden we understand that we're not that much different from the people that the Qur'an speaks about when he says, why do you take religion from your forefathers? Go and learn religion, go and learn theology. There are plenty of resources available as I mentioned the other night. We have a lot of access in front of us. When you know your religion, just things, they turn out to be a lot easier. Things are a lot more simple. Because you don't allow for all of these complications to take place in your mind and in your heart and your soul and distractions and so on and so forth. Know your religion. Hadith, for instance, tells us that someone who doubts too much in their prayers and their wudu, I don't know how many rakah I prayed, I don't know if I did my wudu properly, so on and so forth. There are plenty of people who I know that come to me with these questions all the time. They want me to say their names, but I'm not going to say their names in public. <laughs> if they know their religion, then you have to understand that we ignore doubts because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to bring forth a sense of ease to us. And in a hadith from the Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alaihi Wasallam, Allahumma Sallallahu He says, إِذَا أَرَادَ اللَّهِ بِأَبْدِهِ خَيْرًا يَتَفَقَّهُ فِي الدِّينِ That if Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala wants goodness for His servant, then He will allow for him or her to have an understanding of their religion. So we've all entered into this gathering. In the name of the Messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Wasallam, and His family, in order to demonstrate that we want to learn and that we want to know and that we want to benefit from our religion. We're not only here as a community that wants to come for the sense of ritual, but that we want to come to know and that we want to come to gain in knowledge, and that we want to come to understand. Which is why when he put out the flyer and I said on the fourth night we're going to talk about jinns, everyone said, please make sure this is live streamed from Bangladesh, Pakistan, <laughs> Afghanistan, emails, make sure that this lecture is recorded. Because we want to learn about our religion. Prayers? Maybe. What does it mean when we talk about Qur'an? That's not that important. But the jinn, because my grandmother told me about them. Salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad.
So I want to focus this conversation around jinn within Islamic tradition in three different dimensions. The first dimension is in terms of understanding exactly what is the jinn as defined within the whole of Qur'an. Secondly, in terms of what is the relationship between the human being and the jinn creation. And thirdly and finally, in terms of what we can do to repel any sort of evil energies on a day-to-day -day basis within our lives as narrated by Qur'an and Ahlul Bayt, peace and blessings be upon them. So as for dimension number one, what is the jinn? When you go to different languages, the Arabic language, English, Urdu, Farsi, jinn is jinn. Everyone knows jinn as this unique creation that really no one knows anything about other than it's a unique creation. And we find, as I mentioned before, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions jinn within the whole of Qur'an 22 times. The word jinn in the Arabic language means something that is hidden. Huh? Something that is hidden. Which is why an embryo in the womb of the mother is known as jinin, meaning something that is, cannot be physically sighted. And which is why we call paradise or a garden jannah. Not that it's not physically visible, but because that a garden or paradise in itself, you cannot actually see the floor because it's so filled with trees. See the uniqueness of the language as applied by the whole of Quran and by the traditions of Ahlul Bayt And again, other than that, what is it that we know about the jinn creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Number one, it's important to note that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has certainly created a creation known as jinn. They're not a fabrication, it is something real as defined very deliberately within the Quran and within the traditions of the Prophet and his family, peace and blessings be upon them. So I want to go through a couple of unique questions or frequently asked questions by people in order that we're able to clarify this first dimension in terms of understanding what is the jinn. Firstly, can we see the jinn? Is it possible for the human being to see the jinn on a normal instance? Can I and you visibly see the jinn? There are two different opinions. The first opinion amongst our classical scholars is that the human being is unable to see the jinn, but the jinn is able to see the human being. That again, perhaps someone says now they have the upper hand. They can see us, but we can't see them. Someone might ask another question. How come we cannot see the jinn? And I respond, I don't know. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not defined that for us within the Qur'an, nor have the traditions of the Prophet and Ahlul Bayt defined that for us at all. Someone says again, but I heard this and I heard that. We need evidence to suggest any sense of truth within our religion. And we cannot take religion from myths and from fairy tales, but we have to take again that evidence which is founded within us by the whole of Quran and by the traditions of Ahlul Bayt So the first opinion states that absolutely not, the human being can never see the jinn on normal occasions. Meaning that the prophets of God, they can see the jinn and we'll get into that in a little while. The second opinion, and this is an opinion taken by Shaykh Al-Mufid and Shaykh Al-Tusi, some of the greatest of the most classical scholars within the school of Ahlul Bayt, peace and blessings be upon them, who have stated that there are some opportunities for individuals who have a high spiritual connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be able to physically see the jinn and to be able to converse with them. Someone says exactly again, explain this to me in a little bit more depth. 
The human being is again created from clay that comes from this earth. While the jinn is created from a flame of fire that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. Traditions, they define the jinn as something of a physical substance that is so thin that it's unable to be physically visible toward the human eye. Meaning that they might be living with us, around us. They're in this dimension that we are in right now. Maybe they're sitting in this gathering at this moment because they also want to hear the praises on the Prophet and his family Maybe they want to come and weep and grieve over Imam Hussain When you're walking, maybe they take the subway with you too, I don't know. <laughs> when you're walking in the streets, they roam these streets in the same way that we do. They're in communities, they're in villages, they live a life very similar to ours. We don't know the plunges of depths in regards to who they are because again, we are limited by that which we have within Qur'an and within Ahlul Bayt and we don't want to sway away from the resources that we have in front of us and go in toward suggestions and possibilities and hypotheticals. We want to go in terms of understanding that which we have been given by infallible sources. So the second question that someone might ask is what is the jinn made of? Again, as I mentioned before, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Ar-Rahman, He states chapter uh, 55 verse number 14, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created man from dry clay that comes from the vessels of the earth. And He created the jinn from a flame of fire. Other than that, we keep it at that. But let me just sort of elaborate on this point for just a moment. Someone says, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the jinn from fire, how can the jinn attain punishment if it were to enter into the fire and go to hell, for instance? If it's fire and it's in fire, how is that going to hurt the fire? If I picked up a piece of clay, some dirt, a rock, and I threw it at your head, would it hurt you or no? Of course it would, but we're made from clay. But we're made from dirt. Why does it hurt us? The same way. We don't necessarily know the uniqueness of that creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how it's manifest in this dunya, nor how it will be manifest in the akhirah. So we submit to the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states that He created man from clay and He created the jinn from fire. Next, someone asks, what is the status of the jinn? Are they greater than the human being? Well, this is the argument of Iblis. Iblis, he states when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands for him to prostrate toward Adam, that, oh Allah, you created me from fire and you created him from clay. And in reality, he probably made a judgment that many of us might see as rational. Fire has heat, fire has energy, fire is unique. If I brought forth a pile of dust and I lit a fire in front of me at this moment. What is every child in this room, what is every single one of us in this room going to be more attracted to? The pile of dust, the clay on the, earth, on the, clay on the ground, or the fire? He states, I am better, you created from, from a substance that is physically greater. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, I know what you don't know. That within this creation, the human being, there's an ability and there's a potential, which is why a man one day he comes to Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq, and he states, O grandson of the Messenger of God, who is greater, the human being or the jinn? Which one of us can ascend toward the highest heights of paradise? 
And in order for me to explain this point for just one moment, I'll open up one more parenthesis. Jinns, like human beings, they're also going to be held to account. They do good deeds, we do good deeds. They do bad deeds, we do bad deeds. They live a lifespan, we live a lifespan. We have responsibilities, they have responsibilities. We're going to be held to account, they're going to be held to account. In the same way that we have to live this life, and we have taklifat, we have responsibilities, we have to pray, we have to fast, we have to go for hajj, we have to obey the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they have laws and they have responsibilities and they have taklifat as well. Someone says, I want to know all of the details about that. Baba, you learn your own religion for God's sake. Why are you worried about what the responsibilities of the jinn are? We don't necessarily have those details in front of us. Why don't we open up an Islamic laws book and try to understand our own religion first before we're trying to understand the intricacies of the details of the jinn. You following what I'm saying? So this man, he comes to Imam al-Sadiq and he says, which one of us has greater potential? And Imam al-Sadiq he responds toward his companion of his. He states, Iblis, on that day when he refused to prostrate toward Adam, he states, That you created me from fire and you created him from clay. That I'm better than him. I'm not going to prostrate toward him. So you're doing the same thing. He says, how? He said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might have created him from a substance that was physically greater than dust or than clay. But he doesn't know the luminous nature of the ruh of insan that within the human being, there's a potential, there's an ability toward ascending toward a height that is far greater than that of the angels. As the famous narration from Ali, it states that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created the angels with intellect and He's created the animals with desire and He has created the human being with both intellect and desire. If the human being allows for his desire to overcome his intellect, he is worse than the wild beast that roam this earth. But if he or she allows for his intellect to be a mechanism which guides his desire, then he has the ability to ascend toward a height that is far higher than that of the angels. So know your worth, know your abilities, know your potential. We're continuing along question number four that many people ask. What are the unique features then of the jinn creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Now this is super important for us to understand especially in light of a lot of the questions and controversies that many people want to understand and engage in. The human being has a spiritual potential toward reaching a height that is far higher than that of any other creation. But it's also important to note that the jinn creation, they also have abilities within the realm of this dunya that we don't necessarily have. Quranic verses, for instance, they state that in the earlier days, during the time of the early prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that jinn, they had the ability to travel between the heavens and the earth. I'll give you an example. In the story of Prophet Sulaiman alayhi salam, it is stated that Prophet Sulaiman, he wanted to see Bilqis, who, the queen of Sheba, who ruled the other side of the world. And so Sulaiman he gathered together the ministers of his court and he said, which one of you can bring me the throne of Bilqis? Which one of you can bring me the throne of the Queen of Sheba? This is mentioned in chapter 27 of the Holy Quran, Surah Al-Naml. I don't want to get into details, but for those of you who know, you know. At that moment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala quotes one of the ministers in the court of Sulaiman, who was a jinn. 
I just said before, human beings on a normal occasion, they can't see jinn. I said the exception are the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and those who have deep relationship with God, where God has given them that ability. It says at this moment, قَالَ أَفْرِيْتُمْ مِنَ الْجِنِّ That one from amongst the jinns who were working in the court of Sulaiman said, O Prophet of God, I can bring you the throne of Bilqis in, less the twink in, 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 in the twinkling of an eye, meaning in one blink of an eye, I, can have, I have the ability to bring Bilqis straight in front of you. Meaning again, they can travel different dimensions and different worlds and they can penetrate things. And again, something that is not necessarily understood with our limited and rational intellects. And of course, Sulaiman then has someone else who comes and says, I can bring it in even faster than that. وَمَنْ إِنْدَهُ إِلْمُ الْكِتَابِ The one who has a part of the knowledge of the book. Meaning if someone knows the book of God, and if someone knows their religion, and someone has a close relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they can also traverse the heavens. You understand what I'm saying? Faster than that of the jinn. Anyhow, there is narrations and verses of the Qur'an that state that the jinn, that they had the ability to go and travel between the heavens and the earth. And later on in life, closer toward the time of the advent of the Prophet wasallam, at the beginning of his mission, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala no longer permitted any of the jinn toward going to heaven. Because many of them, they were troublemakers. And they used to go and they used to try to take a little bit, try to eavesdrop on what the angels used to discuss, and then go and share it with their friends, and basically take the information from the central command station of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and basically just try to cause a lot of problems with it. You know, sometimes people know a little bit about religion, and they pretend like they know everything about religion. Yeah, I know everything about religion. I read one verse of the Qur'an. I just read the Qur'an the first time in my life, now I have knowledge in its entirety. And I don't mean this in a way that's arrogant or anything like that. What I'm trying to say is that many times people, they have a little bit and they think they know everything. That's not good, right? You want to be able to understand that the one who knows a little bit more, they actually realize that they don't know anything at all. And knowing a little bit is actually a means by which we humble ourselves. Anyhow, so some of them, they had the ability to travel between the heavens and the earth. To some of them, they were able to take a little bit of this information. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said no more. But another unique feature, and I'll go back to this point in just a moment, about, angel, about the jinn is that they live for a lot longer than the human being. What's the average lifespan of the human being? 75, 80, 82. You have some more details, facts, evidence? So we, we live a lot shorter than the lifespan of the jinn. One day it is said that the Prophet ﷺ was walking in a gathering and he was stopped. And the companion is wondering who's the Prophet ﷺ talking to. He didn't have the ability to see this man who was talking to a jinn. The Prophet ﷺ, he's conversing with this jinn. And then he says, how old are you? He says, O Messenger of God, I witnessed when Qabil killed Habil. He says, how was it? <laughs> he didn't really say that. He said, after that, O Messenger of God, I went and I was witness toward Ibrahim. And I saw that which transpired toward Musa and Isa. And now I'm in your presence, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So they've lived for a really, really long time. And in the olden days, again, they had the ability toward conversing with the angels or at least reaching this high level of height. So some of those jinn, what they tried to do according to our traditions and to our verses 
of the whole of the Quran also point toward this idea is that they go and they try to take what they have in terms of a little bit of knowledge and they try to convince other jinn that this is what we should be doing. This is how we can overtake the angels. This is how we can cause fitna and fasad on the earth. In the same way that, for instance, someone knows, I don't know, how to rob a bank, right? You're going to work toward justifying it, sharing it with your friends. Let's all go ahead and do this together because you have a little bit of knowledge and you know that you can actually go and commit this crime. You can go and you can commit the sin. Or if you know a loophole in religion, I'm going to utilize this loophole in religion to just go and do whatever it is that I want. You know, some people, they always ask, always, every year during the month of Ramadan, for instance. So you're saying that it's allowed for me to travel in the beginning of the day so that I don't have to fast? Yeah, it's allowed. So if I were to hypothetically go to Connecticut and you know travel outside of the travel boundaries and have breakfast there that means I don't have to fast I said technically yes <laughs> and then I don't have to fast right I say yes you can do that is that really what you want to do at the end of the day are you trying to like just sort of you know isolate or sort of push to the side marginalize the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yes permissible it is allowed anything you can find something that is permissible but this scholar said this but I heard this but I read this but this at the end of the day, what these jinn were trying to do is that they were able to get a little bit of insight in regards to the intricacies of how this universe was run and they said we're going to take this information and then sort of allow for it to be a mechanism by which we cause, cause a lot of corruption uh, in, in the world. One more unique feature about the jinn and then I'll move on to the second dimension. And that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the jinn before He created the human being. And He placed them on the earth before He placed the human being on earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, وَالْجَانَّ خَلَقْنَاهُ مِنْ قَبْلِ مِنْ نَارٍ سَمُومٍ That surely we created the jinn from before, from that fire that He created it from. And that brings me then toward the second dimension of my discussion. But before I get into it, is everyone feeling a little bit more comfortable? Still scared? We okay? Okay, recite one salawat. <laughs> My friends, I need you to understand something as well. Super important. That is that again, going back to the point that I mentioned before, from the jinn, there are believers and there are unbelievers. There are those who submitted toward the Messenger وسلم, and there are those who rejected the Prophet Meaning there are Muslims from them, and they are shayateen from them. In the same way that from human beings, there are Muslims from them, and they are shayateen. Shayateen min al-jinni wal-ins. How many times has God mentioned that in the Quran? Several times. That they are shayateen from man and from jinn. How many of you people know shaytan? You might be shaytan yourself. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> I'm really bad at making jokes. <laughs> Everyone is really, really offended by my sarcasm these last few days. I'm sorry, I can't control it. If you were? He'd ask you if you were a jinn? Oh man. We can't see you then. Second question, or the second dimension of the discussion, then what is the human relationship with jinn? If now we understand a little bit of the details of what exactly is the substance of the jinn, that a fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created them also with the purpose so that they have responsibilities, so that they can fulfill them. How can they have any sense of a relationship with us? Or do they have a sense of relationship with us? Again, utilizing the teachings of the Qur'an and Ahlul Bayt, alayhim salatu wassalam. The first 
question that people ask in regards to this notion is can a human being marry a jinn? Someone might think that this is absurd, but people actually ask this question. And in fact, people even say that I think that my husband or that my wife is a jinn. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not lying, I'm not lying. I'm, I, I don't mean, this is, not, this, is not part of the, this is not part of my comedy show, guys. This is like the legit part, yeah? Let's get back to it, all right? Focus over here, huh? That's the funny part. Many people, they ask exactly, is it possible that my spouse is a jinn? Or can a human being marry a jinn? We come and we see that there are two different opinions. There is one opinion amongst Muslim scholars in the past who believed that the human being can marry a jinn. Many people, they stated that Bilqis, again, the queen of Sheba, that one of her parents were a jinn. Going back toward a tradition narrated by Abu Huraira. Within the school of Ahlul Bayt, والسلام, we reject this notion. We state that it's absolutely impossible for the human being to marry jinn. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states within the whole Quran, وَخَلَقْنَا لَكُمْ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ أَزْوَاجًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created you mates from within your own selves. Number one. A second evidence is again the fact that we come from a different physical substance. How can you marry someone who is a different physical substance than you? The fact that we are a human being and that they are fire, it's impossible. So as for this first question in regards to the human interaction with jinn, can the human being marry the jinn? No, that's not possible. A second question that many people ask is, can the human being possess, can, can the human being be possessed by the jinn? No one's laughing at this because people believe that this can take place. Again, we have absolutely no evidence within our tradition nor within the verses of the whole Qur'an that the human being can be possessed by the jinn. That a, human, that a jinn can enter into the human being and speak on behalf of them and act on behalf of them and take over them. Someone says, what are you talking about? Back home where I came from, there was this person who used to charge $75 to allow for the jinn to be removed from the body of my cousin, from my neighbor, this person in the village. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean this is a joke. Again, this is shaitan talking, man. This is completely absurd. When we go toward the evidences that we have, we have nothing within the Qur'an, nor within traditions of Ahlul Bayt, that say that this is a possibility. Someone says, but I have this ta'weed that my grandmother gave me. The Qur'an is written backwards and upside down. You, people are all nodding your head. Now you know what I'm talking about. Especially people who come from South Asian backgrounds. <laughs> We have this Qur'an, Qur'anic verse written upside down, written backwards. This is the way that the jinn does not possess you. So make sure you keep it in your bag, make sure you keep it in your wallet, make sure, and so on and so forth. First of all, that's disrespecting the whole Qur'an. The only way to get out of any evil energy, and I'll sp speak about that in just a moment, is that we utilize our faith, that we utilize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the Qur'an, and Ahlul Bayt You find me one hadith, from the Prophet ﷺ says, recite, write the Qur'an upside down or recite it backwards and you'll see that all of your difficulties are going to go away. What type of religion is that? Yet we have people that believe this. A third question. Can jinn influence my life in a way whereby I'm unable to get married, I'm unable to get a job, and I'm, I'm unable to uh, pass this class or whatever it might be? 
Today, people, they go toward individuals, they pay money for it, especially in the West Village, man. <laughs> they go and they say, remove all of these evil energies from me. I'll pay you $15 and take the jinn away so I can get married, so I can get this job, so I can have children, so I can... Number one, it's haram. Number one, it's haram. It's, it's so haram that I cannot even tell you how haram it is because it's being live streamed. <laughs> That's how haram it is. If you know Islamic law and you know the traditions from the Prophet and Ahlul Bayt about people who carry out this behavior and those who utilize and believe that there's a truth to this behavior, you'll be shocked. You can talk to me about it afterwards. But it's just not true. Yes, there are du'as and there are supplications to remove ourselves from challenges and from difficulties and so on and so forth. But keeping in mind that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, why would He create a creation that can possess us? Why would He create a creation that was only created to harm us? That's just not the reality, that's just not the truth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, Inna ibadi laysa laka alayhim sultan. That surely for, my, surely for my worshippers, for the creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no one can ever overtake them. No one has any authority over them. And that brings me to number four. When it comes toward the human relationship with the jinn, what is the religion of jinn as I mentioned before? There's an entire chapter within the whole of Quran, chapter number 72, which is known as Surat Al-Jinn. Read it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states within the first verse of that chapter, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Qul uhiya ilayya annahu stama'a nafarun min al-jinn, فَقَالُوا إِنَّا سَمَئْنَا قُرْآنًا أَجَبًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is quoting the jinn. And I'll tell you the story behind this. It is said that one day the Prophet was in the city of Mecca. And for those of you who can go back, rewind a couple of days to when I was talking about where Quranic verses are revealed, when would this be? The beginning of the message and the mission of the Prophet He begins in Mecca and then he travels to Medina. He migrates toward the holy city of Medina. So amongst the earliest chapters within the whole of Qur'an is Surah Al-Jinn from those first 10 or 11 years. The Prophet ﷺ one day was walking in the streets of Mecca and he entered into a place where he began to recite his prayers. And as he was praying, he was reciting verses of the whole of Qur'an. Naturally when we pray, we recite verses of the whole of Qur'an. He's reciting these verses of the whole of Qur'an and can you imagine how beautiful the voice of the Messenger of God ﷺ is? You know how beautiful Zuhair's voice is? MashaAllah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all that voice one day, inshaAllah. But then you hear the voice of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it's a lot better than Zuhair's. <laughs> and when you hear the Prophet sallam praying, all of those around them, they would just gravitate toward listening toward the Prophet sallam. And amongst them, according to a tradition, is nafarum min al-jinn, a group of jinn, they came toward listening to the Prophet ﷺ reciting Qur'an. This is the anecdote as mentioned within chapter 72 of the whole Qur'an. According to uh, Az-Zamakshari in his tafsir, he says between 3 and 10, they gathered next to the Prophet ﷺ. And they were sort of listening to the Prophet ﷺ, never hearing anything like that. It's the first time that they were exposed toward the light of the Prophet ﷺ. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all allow for us to be exposed toward the light of the Messenger of God. Not in this world, we've never been able to see Him in this world. We've never been able to hear His voice. We've never been able to smell His fragrance. But because we believe 
and we were not able to see him, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant us that in paradise, inshaAllah. So they were listening to the Prophet and the report states that they began to climb on top of one another, just listening to the beauty of the words of the Prophet And it's mentioned over here in this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, that they began to listen to the Prophet this group of jinn, فَقَالُوا إِنَّا سَمَعْنَا قُرْآنًا عَجَبًا Surely we have heard a recitation that is really unique. And at that moment, just from hearing the words of the whole Qur'an, they submitted to the religion of Islam. They went through the Prophet and the Prophet would begin to teach them, he would begin to converse with them, he would begin to communicate with them. And this is why we state that the Prophet he is a Rasul لِلْإِنْسِ wal-jan. Assalamu alaykum. Ya Sahib al-Zaman, Ya Khalifat al-Rahman, Assalamu alaikum, Assalamu alaikum, Ya Imam al-Insi wal-Jan, we address the Imams of Ahl al-Bayt as well, that you are the leader of the human beings and of the jinn. You understand what I'm saying? That the Prophet wasallam, he converted them or he reverted them by just reciting a couple of verses of the whole Qur'an. When we hear verses of the whole Qur'an, going back toward this point again that I've made mention of now several times, over the last several nights about the importance of the Qur'an, especially during these nights of Muharram, how many of us are immediately influenced by the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The fact that we're ready to submit just upon hearing one verse. I mean that some of the jinn, they have a closer relationship with the Qur'an and with the Prophet than you and I do, or than at least than I do. Think about that for a second. Other narrations state that one day, there was a man who was coming to visit Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam, from amongst his companions and from amongst his students. And as he was about to enter, someone from the house of the Imam salam, stopped him and said, the Imam is really busy. He said, you can come back tomorrow. Come back later. The next day the Imam salam, came. He went into the gathering of Imam salam. He states, Yabna Rasulullah, he said, yesterday I came to visit you, but you were busy, is everything okay? He said, yes, I was busy with something. He says, what were you busy with? Sometimes people, they just like to ask, and they like to ask, they like to ask, even if it's not their business. <laughs> he states, oh my dear companion, yesterday your brothers came to visit me. He said, who? He said, your brothers from amongst the jinn. They came to learn the Qur'an from me. They came to learn fiqh from me. They came to learn hadith from me. They came to ask me questions so they can go back and explain toward their communities in the same way that you learn from me so you can go back and preach to your communities. You understand? So when it comes toward understanding that they're not that bad, man. They come, they might be here, they might be listening to the majlis of Hussein ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib, why not? And this brings me then toward the third dimension of my discussion. And that is then, why do we have all of these ruwayat and all of these du'as and all of these supplications that state if you want to repel jinn, then recite this and do this and do that. If jinn can't marry you, if jinn can't possess you, if jinn can't influence your behavior, then what is all of that about? Very, very quickly I'll run through this point. Again, as I mentioned before, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created shayateen min al-jinni wal-ins from the human being and from the jinn. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also tells us within the whole Qur'an, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, recite with me, قُلْ أَعُوبُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ مَلِكِ النَّاسِ إِلَاهٍ Oh, look at this. مِنْ شَرِّ الْوَسْوَاسِ الْخَنَّاسِ 
الذي يوسوس في من الجنة والناس الحمد لله من الجنة والناس Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he states, or he tells us to say, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ Oh Allah, I seek refuge in the Lord of all men. And then he goes and he states, and Oh Allah, I seek refuge from the waswas of the jinn and the creation. The jinn and the human being. مِنَ الْجِنَّةِ وَالنَّاسِ First question, what is waswas? Waswas is something that is often translated within our Quranic translations as a whispering. Does someone literally come and whisper into your ear and says, hey, why don't you go and eat that food that is haram? Hey, why don't you just skip prayers? Hey, it's Fajr prayers only. Most people miss Fajr prayers, so you can too. People hopefully don't mostly miss Fajr prayers. It's a joke. You should pray your Fajr prayers. Someone comes and whispers to you and says, you know what, you have enough money, but still don't go for hajj, that's for old people. And all of these sorts of different things. No, it's not something that someone whispers into your ear, in terms of that nature where someone literally is whispering, you're hearing someone else talk, no. There's energies and there's tendencies that overcome us. Sometimes they're not so direct and sometimes they might be direct. Sometimes, for instance, you're walking here to come to the Majlis for the grandson of the Messenger of God, and someone says, hey man, why do you want to go and do that? It's only the fourth night, we'll go on the ninth night, we'll go on the tenth night, we'll go after that, we'll go on Ashura, that's the important day. It's from amongst your friends, from amongst the Mu'mineen, from amongst other believers. So instead you say, forget it, I'll go and I'm going to go hang out, and I'm going to go out for dinner instead. Right? That could be, not necessarily shaitan who's your friend, but a satanic tendency that allowed for it to overcome your good intention. And sometimes we have these forces that we just don't know, that we don't see, that we don't necessarily hear physically, but they're pushing us in a way whereby we are going to do something that we don't necessarily want to do, or that we didn't necessarily set out the intention to do. I made an intention that I'm going to give a couple of, a, a couple of dollars in... Charity, for instance. This is a true story. I'll talk about myself. Yesterday, my daughter Zainab had this donation bin. Yeah? Had this donation bin, and she was going to everyone and saying, please donate. I'm cute, Zainab. Donate to Imam Hussein. <laughs> and everyone was putting in money. And then she came to me and she said, Baba, you give me money too. I said, I give you my blood. I give you my sweat. Everything I'm here. Come on, man. Don't ask me for money too. So she says, Baba, you have to give. Everybody gave. I said, okay. She's right. Everyone is giving. I also want to contribute. I took out of my wallet and I saw that I had a five and I had a ten. And I said, okay, I'm going to give the five. And I gave the five. After I put my whole wallet in, my, my Zainab, Zainab said, no, we, we cannot take the whole wallet. So I put the five dollar bill in and I left it. I didn't think anything about it. Two hours later, an hour and a half later after I left, I hadn't eaten. So I went to go and get something to eat before I went home. And the, uh, I needed to tip the person who was serving me food. And I didn't need to tip them five, uh, I needed to tip them, tip them ten dollars. Probably it was worth like three dollars that I had to tip them. I didn't have anything else, I ended up giving them the ten. Which is fine, that person probably did well for themselves. But if that ten went toward the measures of Imam Hussain how much more barakah and benefit would it have brought? <laughs> Honestly, what happened at that moment someone whispered? Right? The satanic tendency entered. Why should I give? Who am I to give? This is not me. I'm the one who delivers the measures. I don't have to give my own wealth. Or if I have wealth, let me give the least bit. 
or you're walking out of the subway, you see someone homeless, and you say, you know what? They're going to use the money and spend it on alcohol. They're going to use the money and do something haram with it. Who am I to judge? Who am I? Don't allow for those tendencies to enter into your heart. That's negative energies that influence our thoughts. We have control over those. And how are we able to have control over those? Again, number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the verse that I mentioned before, He states that for the believer, لَيْسَ عَلَيْهِمْ sultan, That no one can have authority over the believer. You have faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you know that your life is dedicated to your Creator. Nothing and no one will ever be able to bother you. You're not going to be afraid about calling out injustices at work or at school, because you know that God has your back. And that's what we learn from Imam Hussein alayhi salatu you don't have to worry about anything else. When you have the Qur'an, when you have Ahlul Bayt as your guides, as the individuals by which you walk in their footsteps, what's going to bother you? But someone says, no, still, I have these doubts that come into my mind and I have all of these issues and this has to come from somewhere else. We have traditions that tell us that if you are concerned about these energies pushing you in a negative direction, you do this. Before you pray, before you go to sleep, excuse me, you perform wudu. You perform wudu, and then before you go to bed, when you're lying down, sitting down, whatever it might be, you recite surat Qul a'udhu barabbil falaq, Qul a'udhu barabbil nas, and you recite ayatul kursi, ayatul kursi, chapter 2, verse 255, verse 256, and verses 257. Every single night, that if we do these things, we'll see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow for that faith, will allow for the strength of our faith to increase. Then if we go to other word, other supplications, du'as from Imam Zayn al-Abideen, for instance, in that Sahifa al-Sajjadiyah, he says the du'a to take away, for instance, the evil eye. This is a real thing, again, it's a negative energy that someone sends. But if you know that you have control over anyone's negative energies, because you believe in God, you won't get influenced by anything else. But nonetheless, we have du'as that say, read this du'a, recite verses of the whole Qur'an. But if we do something as simple as this, as I mentioned before, make wudu before you sleep, recite Surah Falaq, Surah Nas, Ayatul Kursi, that's it. You recite Salawat before you sleep, Salawat when you wake up, and you understand that your faith in God is greater than any other force that might potentially influence you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a force that no one is going to reckon with. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy and His generosity is that vast. Allahumma inni as'aluka barahmatika allati wasa'at kulla shay. That, oh Allah, I ask you by your mercy, which is comprehensive of all things. When you have the mercy of God that's covering you at every moment, what's going to bother you? And what's going to influence you? Sadaqallah Muhammad wa Muhammad. Everyone feel a little bit better? Yeah? Alhamdulillah. Please recite one more salawat. Okay. And when going back toward again this idea, and I'll conclude with this point, that we have to understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created the creation, every single one of us, with a responsibility. A responsibility to be obedient responsibility to fulfill our divine covenant with our Creator. But plenty of individuals, they will go astray from the path that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has designated from them. And amongst those creations again are the human being and the jinn. 
Iblis himself, Iblis, meaning the shaytan, right? Himself as we know him, the one who refuses to prostrate toward Adam, as I mentioned before, he is amongst the jinn. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala utilizes and connotates the same word. By the way, the word in Arabic language, shaytan, means someone who doesn't behave properly. It doesn't mean you should call your kids shaytan. Because it's not nice. But again, as I mentioned before, <laughs> as I mentioned before, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has utilized the same word for human beings as well. Shayateen min al-jinni wal-ins. And I ask you a question, my dear friends. Shaytan himself, Iblis, the shaytan, his crime According to traditions, a tradition narrated in Nahj al-Balagha, he was a man who worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. Because huh? we said before that jinn are created before the human being as well. He was a man or a creation who worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for thousands of years. To the extent that he would be one who would teach the angels how to make du'a and how to recite adhkar of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Can you imagine? It is stated that on one occasion, before he was known as Iblis, his initial name, his real name is Azazil. It said that one day he was sitting on a throne in paradise and he was performing dhikr. He was giving a lecture and he was playing with his tasbih. Saying Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. As he was giving his lecture, he was playing with it with his fingers. You might see me do that sometimes. Other people, they do that. Concentration or because we have ADHD or a lot of other things. <laughs> as, he's, as he's preaching toward this congregation of angels, the tradition states that he dropped his prayer beads. And because of how respected that he was in the community of angels, they rushed toward it so they can be the one who picks it up so they can give it to their teacher. That's the status that he had. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does he state? He states that tomorrow one of you is going to disobey me when I tell you what you have to do. One of you is going to disobey me. What happens? Azazil, he goes into his chamber and he says, Oh Allah, I really hope it's not Jibra'il. Oh Allah, no, this is what our tradition tells us. Oh Allah, I hope it's not Mika'il. Oh Allah, do not make Israfil from amongst those who disobey you. He was concerned about everyone else except for himself. And on that day when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He commands all of the angels to prostrate and all of the creations in heaven toward prostrating toward Adam, فَسَجَدُوهُمْ إِلَّا Iblis. And every one of them prostrated toward Adam except for Iblis. And that arrogance and that pride of his allows for him to be casted away into eternal punishment. I mentioned before, shayateen min al-jinni wal-ins. What's worse? Iblis who refuses to prostrate toward Adam or those men who surrounded the grandson of the messenger of God, Sayyid Shabab Ahl al-Jannah, the leader of paradise in and of itself, the leader of Adam and of Abraham and of Moses and of Jesus, ready to shed his blood at any moment as he was alone with his women and his children. That's the shayateen that we're talking about when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states shayateen min al-jinni wal-ins. 
the grandson of the messenger of God, the greatest of all creation, the mercy to the worlds. 30,000 people. Last night, I told you that Imam al Hussein he changes his intention on the 8th of the month of the Hijjah, the day known as Yawm At-Tarwiyah. As all of the Hajjaj, they begin to make their way toward Arafat, the caravan of Imam al Hussein began to make its way toward Karbala. And on the way toward Karbala, they alighted at a location known as Sharaf, which is a town, which is a city in between Mecca and in between Kufa. Because again, Imam al Hussein's intention was to going toward the city of Kufa, which was the stronghold of the followers of Ahlul Bayt during that day. Why? Because Ali ibn Abi Talib, when he became the Caliph, after the death of Uthman ibn Affan, he moves the Khilafah toward the city of Kufa in order to repel a lot of the military threats that were transpiring in the Muslim world during that time. So for four years and nine months, Ali ibn Abi Talib, he lives in Kufa. And with him is Al-Hasan and Al-Husayn and the members of Ahlul Bayt, the family of the Messenger of God. Peace and blessings be upon them. And the Imam السلام, had received 12, between 12 and 16 and 18,000 letters from the people of Kufa saying, you come to us and we will support you and we will help overthrow the Umayyad Caliphate. Of course, the Imam السلام, also receives news of the martyrdom of Muslim bin Aqil during the course of that journey. As I mentioned a couple of nights ago, who was his successor, who was his cousin, who was his brother, who he had sent and appointed towards scoping out the situation at Kufa. But the Imam السلام, had nowhere else to go. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This is the grandson of the Messenger of God. The man who would sit on the shoulders of the Prophet when the Prophet would go into sujood, the Imam, the Prophet السلام, would not get up from sujood. And they would go to him out of disrespect for the Prophet of God. And they would say, Oh Rasulullah, did you make a mistake in your sujood? Did you make a mistake in your prostration? He says, no, I'm the messenger of God. They said, then why did you elongate it? He said, because my son Hussein was on my back and I want to demonstrate to you all of the importance of Hussein. This is Hussein. Fast forward 50 years later, and he has nowhere to go. Along with a band of women and a band of children who are looking for some sense of contentment and solace. On that way, they reach a town, a city known as Sharaf. And at the same time, when Imam Hussein leaves the city of Mecca to make his way toward Kufa, I mentioned last night there were a thousand people from the army of Yazid, of Banu Umayyah, that were ready to shed the blood of Imam al-Hussein within the holy city of Mecca, immediately had to leave. Naturally, the news is going to spread very quickly that he left Mecca. So, from the government in Damascus of Banu Umayyah, Yazid ibn Muawiyah had instructed the army of Hur ibn Yazid al-Riyahi, which was one of the contingencies of army in Kufa, to going toward intercepting the Imam السلام, in order to direct him toward a location where they can shed his blood. Now please understand this point, super important. And if I could just ask for that door to be closed in the back, if you don't mind. 
And now understand this point, super important. Super important. That at this moment, Hur ibn Yazid al-Riyahi is amongst the most important military commanders of that initial 30,000 of Yazid ibn Muawiyah. He comes and he catches the Imam alayhi salam and his group of the contingency of the army in the city known as Sharaf. And he goes toward Imam al-Husayn alayhi salam and he says, Oh Aba Abdullah, I've been instructed two things. He said, either number one, you come with me to Damascus to pledge allegiance to Yazid ibn Muawiyah or I have to kill you. To which the Imam alayhi salam, he says, like I, like I said before, Mithli la yubayu mithla. That a man like me will never pledge allegiance to a man like him. But then he said something to Hur that lit a fire under him. He states, that, sure, that may your mother grieve over you. You know, Ahlul Bayt, the family of the Prophet, they don't talk like that very often. They don't talk with a sense of such stern language. But sometimes in order to prove a point, they have to do what they have to do. What happens to Har? He says, Oh Aba Abdullah, if your mother was anyone other than Fatima al-Zahra, I would have responded with the same response, meaning may your mother grieve over you. What happens? Hor, he begins to think. He says, this man just cursed me. Who am I to curse him when he's the son of Ali and Fatima? When he's the son of the daughter of the messenger of God? Who am I? This is instance number one that begins to allow for the heart of Hor to become softened. So Hor leaves him. He doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't really believe that this battle is going to take place. So a few moments later, the Adhan of Dhuhr is called. And Hur is approached by Imam al-Husayn. And he says, Oh Hur, you take your army and you lead them in prayers over here. And I'm going to take my army and my family and I'm going to lead them in prayers over here. You know what Hur says? He says, Oh Aba Abdullah, you are the son of the messenger of God. How can I lead prayers? And you lead prayers. No, we'll all pray behind you. Again, he knows. He realizes. And he's beginning to allow for that sense of softness of his heart to overcome. You fast forward a couple of moments later. They were there for a couple of days. It is said that a group from the army of Hur on their way from Kufa towards Sharaf where they were intercepting the Imam, they got lost. So on that journey, they finally caught up toward their rest of their group. And they had lost water, they were away in the desert for three, four days without anything. So when they saw the army of Hur, they saw the army of Amr they saw these thousands of people gathered together, they were so excited, they're gonna get water, they're gonna get food. Hur, he states, or some of, some of the army of Hur, they state that at that moment, that when we saw members of our community coming, members of our army coming from Kufa, we saw two luminous faces run toward them, pouring water into their hands and giving it toward the army of Hur al-Riyahi. Who were those people? Imam al-Husayn alayhi salam number one and Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas number two. They were putting water in their hands toward feeding it toward those same individuals who were ready to shed their blood only a few days later. But that's not it, my friends. You know what else they saw? 
They saw that Imam Al-Hussein this is the mercy that we talk about. He put water in his hand and he began to feed it to the horses of those members of the army of Hur al-Riyai. For all of those of you who know the story, you know that Imam Al-Hussein was thirsty on the day of Ashura. How much that water could have helped his children on the day of Ashura as they called out, Halatash, Halatash, Ya Aba Abdullah. The thirst is killing us, oh our father, Aba Abdullah. But they were ready to serve because that's who Hussein was. We fast forward to the 10th of Muharram. It is said that Hur al-Riyahi, he is looking at the camp of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam and he's observing before the battle takes place. A few moments before the Adhan of Fajr, he goes outside of the tents and he begins to walk toward the center of the battlefield and he's just looking at Imam al-Hussein's camp, which is so small in comparison with theirs, which has women running around and children, which has these individuals with really beautiful faces. It was before the time of Fajr, so he saw them standing and bowing and prostrating performing the night prayer. He heard them reciting verses of the whole Qur'an. And Hur al-Riyahi, he turns back and he goes toward Umar bin Sa'ad. And he says, oh Umar bin Sa'ad, tell me, are we really going to kill the son of the Messenger of God? To which he states, oh Hur, know that in a couple of moments, heads will be rolling on this desert. And at this moment, he goes back toward that center of that battlefield. And he takes his horse and they begin to make these small steps. And one man, he comes and he states toward Hur. He says, oh Hur, if I was to be asked about the most courageous and the most brave man of Kufa, by God, I would have said that it is Hur ibn Yazid al-Riyahi. But today I see you shaking, I see you trembling, I see that you're so nervous. What is it? He responds with this epic line, Inni ara nafsi bayna jannati wa nar That surely I see myself at this moment between the gardens of paradise and eternal hellfire. And by God, nothing is greater than paradise with the grandson of the messenger of God. It is said that at that moment, that man, he says, I didn't think anything. I saw Hur making some small steps toward the other side. I thought he was going to use the restroom. He had his son and he had his brother and he had a slave and a couple of members of the family who were with him. And they began to make ways toward the tent and the camp of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam. My dear friends, every one of you again who know the anecdotes, you know that Hur is this legendary personality that every single one of us we can relate to. Every single one of us are sinners. Every single one of us have done plenty of wrong things. Every single one of us have our hearts that have been darkened by vice. But none of them compared toward the sin that Hur committed. And that was by channeling the Imam السلام, to his eventual martyrdom. So in what way did he go? It is said that he climbed on top of his horse. And he put, he put his... He put his face mask over his head and he took his sword and he took his spear and he turned them upside down and he lowered his head to the ground and it began to ride slowly, slowly, slowly until it reached the bank of the, of the tent of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam and Abil Fadl al-Abbas alayhi salam. He exits from the tent and he says, which one of you dare to come toward the tent of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam? I will kill you if you come any closer. And at this moment, Sayyid al-Shahada al-Husayn, he enters and he says, Oh, Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas, leave this one for me. I got this. 
And it is said that at that moment, Hur, he falls down to the ground and the Imam alayhi salam, he says, Ya Rajul Men, and oh man, who are you? But Imam knew who he was. He wanted him to admit, he wanted him to seek forgiveness. He didn't respond out of sadness, out of embarrassment. He says again, Men and Ya Rajul, who are you, oh man? He does not respond. A third time, Imam al Hussein says, Ya Rajul, oh man, who are you? You know the way Hur responds. He says, Ya Aba Abdullah. Oh my master, Aba Abdullah, I am the one who took you away from your path. Oh Aba Abdullah, I am the one who has orphaned your children. Oh Aba Abdullah, I am the one who has widowed your, your, your wives. Is there forgiveness for me? Can I repent? Is there an opportunity for me at this moment? And I tell you, my dear friends, our hearts are filled with vice, but not like that of Hur al who caused for the face of Zainab to be slapped on the night of the 11th of Muharram. At this moment, Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam says, if you seek forgiveness, and you'll find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the all-forgiving. And at that moment, he stands up, he embraces Imam al-Hussein. And according to one report, he says, Oh, Aba Abdullah, please go to your sister, the granddaughter of the Messenger of God, and tell her that I'm really sorry for what I've done. Imam al-Hussein says, Don't worry, she will forgive you. And he says, Oh, Aba Abdullah, I've given this... I, I, I am the one who has led you toward this path. I ask you for one thing, and that is that you allow for me to be the first of those who go and defend your family. Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam, he permits him, he gets on top of his horse, first his brother is killed, his slave is killed, his son is killed during the course as well, according to, according to the tradition, and Hur al-Riyahi, he comes and he recites his lines of poetry, and then he goes and he begins to fight the army of Umar ibn Sa'ad, and he fights very bravely and courageously, until a man he comes and he strikes him from the right, and another man comes and strikes him from the left, and another man comes and strikes him on his head, and he recites his line, Peace be upon you, O oh, Imam al Hussein. Imam al Hussein, alayhi salam, he leaves the tent, he rushes to Hur al Riyahi, he goes down on the ground, he places his head on his lap, and he begins to remove the blood from his face, and he states, Ya Hur, anta hurrun kama samitka ummuk, that, O oh, Hur, you are free just as your mother named you. And then again, he looks at Aba Abdullah and he says, Oh, my master Hussein, are you sure that I've been forgiven? He says, Of course. And the Imam, alayhi salam, he looks at his face as he's weeping and as he's grieving looking at the last sight of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam he begins to wipe off the blood and wipe off the tears but I ask you oh Aba Abdullah every one of those companions of yours on the 10th of Muharram every single one of them before they died they were able to see your face but oh Aba Abdullah before you died which face did you have to see you saw the face of Shimar bin Diljoshan ready to sever your head from your body We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by our love for the Prophet and his family peace and blessings be upon them to allow for us to be raised with Muhammad and Wa'ali Muhammad We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow for our life to resemble the life of Muhammad and Wa'ali Muhammad and our death to remember the death of Muhammad and Wa'ali Muhammad. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to raise us with Muhammad and Wa'ali Muhammad in the next life.
and to grant us their shafa'a in this life and in the barzakh and in the next life. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our grief for Imam al-Husayn alayhi salam to be a means by which it cures our spiritual diseases and by which it forgives our sins. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow for us to walk in the footsteps of Sayyid al-Shuhada al-Husayn and his family and his companions. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow for the success of these programs moving forward by the blessing of Muhammad and Ali Muhammad. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us his ziyarah in this life and his shafa'a in the next life. Walhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahumma ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina Muhammad wa alihi al-Tayyibin al-Tahirin. If I could ask you all to recite one surah al-Fatiha, but before that, one salawat ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. If you found this beneficial, please share reposts and consider donating at icnyu.org slash donate to support the consistency of programs like this one. Follow Sheikh Fayez on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Fayez Jeff.